If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. So today we have two very special guests with us. Uh, we have Brett Waters, who's a co-founder and executive director and uh, of uh, Reason for Hope. And we also have Lieutenant General Martin Steele, a USMC retired. Uh, did, I, did I say that correctly? Because it's a, it's a long title. I just want to make sure I got it. I got it right. Uh, so, and then we'll, we'll get into, uh, what reason, uh, for hope is, but I welcome both of you gentlemen. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, before we dive in and we'll start with Brett, I really want to get a background understanding of, uh, you know, both of your histories and, and, uh, and a background, so we'll brought you here. So, uh, Brett, we'll start with you. If you can kind of uh, let us know sort of uh, where you grew up uh, and uh, sort of where you resided as a, as a kid. I am from Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. Uh, usually when people hear that, if they're a sports fan, the first thing they'll say is, oh, Kobe Bryant. I, you know, know Lower Marion and, uh, you know, suburb of Philadelphia. And I have now reside in, in New York City. Yeah, I'm I'm a Philly guy too. I live in LA, but uh, I grew up in uh, Northeast Philadelphia. Went to high school in North Philly. Went to Temple University. So I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm very four for four uh, Philly sports team. Still living in LA. So yes, Lower Marion, got it. Well, that's where my sister lives as well. And uh, yeah, big Phillies win last night. On exactly. The next one, so. Red, go Birds too. 
so, uh, General, uh, uh, what about you? Well, ironically, and I knew that I know where Brett's from, and I heard from your previous podcast that I listened to that you were from Philly. I was born in Maniunk, and, oh. uh, but I left at the age of four and moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I was raised until I went into the United States Marine Corps in 1965. And I currently live in Tampa, Florida. So I'm not happy as you two are regarding the fact that the Rays scored one run after having the best, uh, second best record in the American League and just absolutely shut it down uh, and lost badly uh, yeah, I, in, their, in their playoff games. Well, we're, we're, we're sorry about that, but, you know, <laughs> uh, it's just the way it goes. And it's, it's hard to play in Philly. As if you saw any highlights, uh, and that's not that's not even the Eagles fans; they're just the Phillies fans. The Eagles fans are even worse. But since yeah. you were born in Maniunk, we sort of half claim you uh, as our own anyway. So we'll we'll take you on board. That, it's so. worth it. That, that's <laughs> worth it for sure. I'm happy that I am half claimed. But I have some relatives still back there, and I go back there quite frequently. So great. Um, so Brett, we'll go back to you. I want to get an understanding of, uh, and, and by the way, this is probably more relevant than than a lot of uh, uh, people that, that I asked this question about your childhood. So basically, what type of child do you, you have? Uh, were your parents together? Do you have siblings? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So I, I mentioned my, yeah, I have a younger sister who, who lives in LA and I, uh, my parents were together for, you know, my childhood until I, I went to college and they they got divorced and uh i'm you know the reason that i got into the to the work that i do now unfortunately is uh because i lost my mom to suicide five years ago uh her name was sherry hope waters and so reason for hope is is named in her memory and i had lost her father uh my grandfather to suicide when i was young but i did not know it at the time. My family didn't talk about it. Uh, I thought he passed away. I think cancer was what we were told. And I inadvertently learned uh, later in life that what had actually happened uh, just overheard a conversation. And so my family did not talk about that for a very long time. And really, even until my grandmother passed away shortly before my mom, uh, it was just not something that my family really ever spoke about. Uh, did he actually have cancer? And then, uh, you know, or or was that just like uh, the smokescreen because it's such a stigma associated with uh, suicide? Yes, the stigma and, you know, shame that a lot of families, I think, who have experienced this kind of loss deal is yeah why that story and and i was very young when it happened so i that was you know at least for me that i'm sure that was that was part of the reason as well for uh you know that the older people in our, in our family certainly knew what what happened but uh, at that age i parents didn't didn't want to share that information and so it was and then i think probably just like maybe never even realized that i, I was unaware i just didn't just didn't talk about it so yeah it's uh you know a, a lot of the the work that i first did like getting into the suicide prevention like policy and advocacy after losing my mom was just about being you know 
open and like sharing, educating, uh, not repeating the mistakes that I uh, feel like were, were made to a certain extent with, uh, yeah, hiding what, what happened and, and kind of like, yeah, feeling that, that shame and, and just, uh, think it was just like, I, I, yeah, I had to be, had to be open about it and, and, uh, share and, and not repeat, I guess, the mistakes of the past. Yeah, I want, I want to get into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, but just uh, going back to uh, uh, General Steele, if you can, uh, same same question about childhood, uh, sure. you know, parents and uh, and sort of how you grew up. Yes. Uh, I don't have much of a recollection of my time in Maniunk. My, my father, uh, who I really never knew, uh, was an alcoholic and abusive, and he even tried to throw me out the third-story window where we lived on Ritchie Street. And my brother, older brother, uh, eight years older, saved my life, uh, preventing him from doing that. And my mother uh, left him, and uh, my early recollections are very, very uh, uh, infrequent. But uh, my stepfather. Uh, who was a World War II uh, fighter pilot, uh, moved the family, my older brother, older sister, and me to uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. They were in the construction business. And so he uh, was shot down uh, over France in World War II. He was a P-47 Thunderbolt pilot, was a prisoner of war in Stalag Luft I in Barth, Germany, uh, for an extended period of time. And uh, suffered immeasurably from uh, his captors and uh, had what we would call today uh, post-traumatic stress. And he too had challenges uh, with alcohol and he never was abusive. Uh, He loved my mother and my siblings and I, but he had problems uh, addicted to alcohol. He was a functional uh, alcoholic. In fact, he died and Veterans Day in a VA hospital in my hometown in 1995, and uh, for me, he's part of the uh, the reasoning too. Because I think that some of these treatment protocols uh, uh, would have been very beneficial for him. We never knew in my family uh, what his story was, and he never told it except on our 18th birthdays. So he would take a day out of school. Or I would take a day out of school, and he'd take a day out of work. And uh, in my case, uh, we sat down for eight hours, and he drank chocolate milk to coat his stomach and uh, uh, told me the entire story. I couldn't ask a question, couldn't say anything, couldn't go to the bathroom, couldn't do anything, just sat there and listened and was totally mesmerized by his uh, lived experience, his resilience, his passion for life. his gift of life. And it was a part of the inspiration that had me uh, shortly thereafter uh, enlist in the United States Marine Corps. Yeah. But we each come through because of, you know, when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, I quickly went to uh, Vietnam. This was 1965, 66 timeframe. And uh, my mentors were World War II veterans, uh, Korean War veterans, all who had issues relative to their lived experiences with being in harm's way, and uh, had the residual effects of trauma associated with that. But they were inspirational uh, to me in regards to uh, how they 
conducted themselves uh, despite the trauma that they were experiencing. Just as my uh, coaches and teachers and uh, people that were in my life in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which was singularly unique, and it was the first integrated community south of the Mason-Dixon line after Brown versus Board of Education in 54. So we were a bastion of racial tolerance in Arkansas with the only uh, integrated school community. And uh, we wore that uh, with a badge of honor. And it had a powerful effect on me, too, on making the right choices and doing the right things in regards to race, uh, respect for your fellow man, and understanding uh, being on the right side of history. So coming out of that lived experience, Growing up uh, as a student athlete, I was a baseball player, football player, and ran track. and was very, very good at all of them, as a matter of fact, but I um, jettisoned all that to come into the Marine Corps. But the point was is that it held me in good stead in regards to understanding man's inhumanity to man, the banality of war, and uh, what this is all about. And that, for me, uh, my lived experience in that first tour of combat where I was meritoriously promoted on the battlefield to the rank of corporal uh, was that the gift of life is something that if you can grasp it, in my case, it was age 19, uh, what the blessing of the gift of life is. And it's about giving back. And so what Brett just said and what's got us together about all this is about at my age, now 77, it's what am I doing in regards to giving back because I've been blessed with a gift of life. And it's not violins playing and the angels' wings flapping. It's just the reality of how I view our responsibility to do something differently in the regards to the challenges associated, particularly with veterans and first responders. My mother was a nurse uh, for all of her life. But people who are engaged in trying to help other people in the case of veterans and the 20-year global war on terror uh, preserve our way of life in this country and that we have a moral responsibility to do something about whatever their lived experiences have been that have causing them assimilation problems back into our society. And so uh, we are bonded together, Brett and I, about a mission to prevent deaths of despair by helping to develop and advocate for the policy and legal reforms needed to facilitate safe and affordable access to psychedelic medicine and assisted therapies. And in that regard, we see the condition we're in right now in this country, where the case of over a thousand veterans have had to go outside of the country, Mexico, Costa Rica, Central and South America, to get treatment, uh, wherein, uh, because it's uh, not legal here, and they're in their uh, uh, last hope to prevent them from taking their own life and perhaps the lives of their loved ones. Uh, they're traumatized with uh, depressive disorders, anxiety, alcohol abuse, victims of military sexual trauma, and the horrors of war and the moral guilt associated with all of that, and survivor's guilt. So what we're doing, we believe, is with these initiatives that we have, is looking at an alternative where we can reschedule this. This is not about social use or, or decriminalization. What we're all about is uh, research and therapy and treatment protocols that are going to enable people 
uh, to be able to uh, live lives that are worth living and valued to their communities, to their families, and learn, uh, relearn what love is all about and selflessness is all about. So uh, we've had so much success that Brett can talk about in more detail and I would uh, follow on. But the point is that for now, it's taking those experiences and the models that I emulated and realizing uh, that uh, their opportunity, like my stepfather, again, never really knowing my real father, uh, didn't have. And there was no procedures that would enable him to be able to have uh, a quality of life with viable alternatives and SSRIs and things that uh, are currently being uh, provided uh, in our medical system, including in the Veterans Administration, aren't getting the job done. Their success rate is very, very low. Uh, There's a confidence factor with our veterans, with the VA, particularly in the area of uh, mental health care. There's a shortage of providers. And uh, we can't continue the madness uh, of thinking that we can continue to provide the same medication protocols that were provided 70 years ago and think that we're going to get a different result because we're not, Glenn. We're not. Yeah, and so yeah, I this is said. The oppor- yeah, this is the opportunity that uh, we think that we have by uh, these initial steps of rescheduling uh, these medications and then getting uh, expanded access to the programs, not just to veterans, but but uh, first responders, uh, medical people, exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. All of that has put us in a crisis in mental health that is second to none. We've never experienced anything like this in our lifetimes, in the history of our republic. And we have an opportunity to do something about it if we would just get off the shine and look at these viable alternatives. Yeah, hundred percent, and and also in your story, like uh, feeling through trauma, like trauma can be a uniting force as well. Uh, you know, you had trauma as a as a young kid with your father, then you know your stepfather, then going into war, and you know Brett obviously has some trauma. So there's a, there's a thread that can unite people, bind them together, and then be able to create something that what you guys are doing. So. First of all, I'm curious how you two met, and then I want to get into the the purpose of uh, Reason for Hope, and I have a couple of questions about more specifics. So, uh, Brett, how did you and Lieutenant uh, uh, General still meet? Sure. So, uh, actually, through my my dad, it was uh, yeah. I come from like a family of wrestlers. Basically, I grew up wrestling my whole life. My uh, dad wrestled at Penn. Uncles wrestled in college at Yale and Lehigh, and, and yeah, I just come from one of those families. And and my uh, dad's college wrestling coach was like a grandfather to me growing up, and he uh, is the one who introduced me to to General Steele, whose uh, son was also a wrestler, and that was the connection to uh, you know through that community that uh, you know put us in in touch initially, and then it just took some uh, you know. So some work and, and progress to, to really, you know, bring him in, but I'll, I'll let, uh, you know, general steel share his, his perspective of, you know, he's, he's been sort of at this for, for much longer than I have in, in some respects. And, uh, yeah, just very fortunate that, that we were able to, to kind of almost basically bring him out of 
retirement to, to really come and like lead the charge in, in this movement uh, because he can open doors and do things that I just could never possibly do myself. And, and so, uh, yeah, very, very blessed and fortunate to uh, have his, his partnership and leadership in this, this movement here. Yeah, I would say uh, briefly, he had me on hello, so it really wasn't that hard uh, because of his story and the background. The common bond was my son's uh, college wrestling coach. Uh, uh, He he informed me about this connection, and then when we first met and I heard his story, I was convinced this was the rightful thing to do because I have been involved in this for an extended period of time. Uh, I retired in 1999 as what in civilian language would be the chief operating officer of the Marine Corps. And I went to the, uh, to be the president CEO of the intrepid sea air space museum in New York city. And I was there for nine 11 and invited the FBI to come to the ship. And we had 750 FBI agents. Uh, living on the Intrepid, investigating the attack on America uh, within 48 hours, and then subsequently moved to Tampa to be at the University of South Florida, uh, which is three campuses, but the main campus, about 47,000 students. But I was in the Office of Research and Innovation, working with scientists on the comorbidities with traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, military sexual trauma, prosthetics, robotics, burn victims adjacent to uh, one of the polytrauma centers in the VA system, the James A. Haley VA Medical Center. So we were working hand in glove and looking at suicide prevention and mitigation. And I, uh, uh, in the process of all of that, met Brett and I testified three times before the Congress on suicide prevention, uh, knowing that this cohort of warriors who've been so selfless with multiple tours of combat had not come to the surface yet. And then in 2015, uh, 16 timeframe, I was appointed by Senator Mitch McConnell to be on the Commission on Care to look at the future of VA health care, because at that time it was 22 suicides a day. It was failing our veterans abysmally. Uh, there was no confidence in their treatment protocols. And it was commensurate with all of that that Brett and I uh, met. And we were looking at what could we do to be able to influence uh, viable alternatives, not only in the VA, but in the system, but in the policy advocacy perspective at both the federal and state levels. So we had made 18 recommendations to the Congress uh, at the conclusion of the, after a year on the Commission on Care. Fifteen of them were bought by the president and uh, the Congress and the secretary of the VA. They became the Mission Act, the PACT Act, the WISE Act, and several other things. But it was just this issue where we needed community-based care and outreach because the VA was not really equipped nor prepared to be able to handle uh, the significant number of people that could be coming forward with issues, but were hesitant to do that because of the um, the treatment protocols that they were undergoing inside the VA. And we wanted to be able to get train the trainer programs and methodological approaches that were going to ensure that there could be treatment available and we would have 
qualified people to be able to do it and that we would have the country supporting it, knowing the need was so significant, which it still hasn't really come to the forefront because it's going to take another few years after these uh, wars uh, before the main cohort, I think it was 2.3 million that served uh, during that period of time that their issues may uh, manifest themselves. So it'll be down the line some. So what we want to do is get ahead of this. And uh, the marriage with Brett uh, it was a perfect one. And uh, he's a tremendously gifted lawyer, tremendously uh, gifted writer, and has, because of his lived experience, has the ability to be able to take that the legal side of all this and his passion for the advocacy side of all of it to put in to language for federal bills, state bills, and to help people understand uh, how we can get this done when it's been avoided uh, and not necessarily looked at in a holistic way, which we think needs to be done. So what are the specific conditions that you feel psychedelics are efficacious uh, on and then which psychedelics do you feel are efficacious for those types of conditions? Brett, why don't you so, start? Sure. So, I mean, I think there's, there's like several ways to kind of look at this and, and at the, the biggest picture, highest level of, uh, kind of my perspective is that like, we have these, you know, conditions like PTSD, depression, DSM diagnoses that are, very sort of fungible overlapping you know can, there are symptoms and things that you know you, two people could have de- so-called like major depressive disorder or you see and have like very different profiles and so i think there's uh, a lot of uh, you know and and people who have you know both ptsd and depression and mm-hmm. uh and substance use disorder and that's really most most people i would say if you if you've got like one of those like you're gonna have uh most often like you're going to have several of these kind of comorbidities. And so there's, uh, I think that's, that's like one element that, that is very kind of frequent within our work is, is how do we address kind of the more real world patients that like getting away from these uh, just pure like DSM diagnoses and, and very rigid pharmaceutical kind of clinical trials for each particular condition. And right. so I, don't, tre- I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I just wanted to kind of add to what you were saying because you hit the nail on the head with something that I, I've been struggling with for a long time on this whole notion of insurance reimbursement and this pharmaceutical approach to CPT 10 codes, to ICD 10 codes. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I have a company that does genetic testing. So we can clearly see that some people have predispositions to PTSD, but there's, as you mentioned, comorbidities with that. You know, there's a, there's a gene called COMT, C-O-M-T. They call it the warrior, warrior gene. Now, if I look and, you know, we're HIPAA compliant, everything, just if I look at the, the cohort, we see athletes, high performing athletes, veterans, they actually are in the bucket that they are the warriors. But what happens is, and I had this conversation recently with an ex-retired NFL player, a uh, great player, and he said to me, when he's in the trenches, when he was in the trenches, 300-pound linemen would be running at him, everything would be slowed down, he's in flow. As he's sitting at home, after he's retired, birds are chirping, it's a beautiful day, 
he's got this anxiety, this stress. And then the, and the, the triggers the epigenetic expression where he's uh, predisposed for. And I, I think there's a lack of really understanding on the, you know, in uh, obviously pharmaceutical have their own agenda, but there's lack of understanding that there's these comorbidities and predispositions that we can actually know and we can get ahead of. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because these, these coding systems really are flawed in that way, not serving the people. They're, they're very flawed. And, and from, you know, uh, to not get into like so much kind of high level software of just like, you know, what is the research showing right now? You know, MDMA assisted therapy is the, you know, FDA breakthrough therapy for PTSD. It'll be probably a, a get FDA approval next year for, for that specific condition. And, and there are two different psilocybin therapies that have FDA approval, one uh, for treatment-resistant depression and another for major depressive disorder, which again, like, should those, you know, necessarily be different things? How treatment-resistant depression is not particularly well-defined. You know, people classify it as just like failing two different kind of SSRIs that usually are just like the same type of drugs and uh, not necessarily even having tried therapy for certain people. So it, there's a lot of inconsistencies anyways. Uh, and, uh, I think frustrating components of, of yeah the just definitions and and the way that we think about these uh yeah whether you know calling them disorders illnesses uh, i prefer using certain conditions uh but the you know those are, are the kind of specific conditions that those are being studied for but in, in the case of psilocybin like an unbelievable uh progress also with alcohol uh, use disorder and you know some really promising data on smoking cessation uh, really good early data on anorexia and in in my case you know what kind of initially brought me into this world even before uh you know i had lost my mom at what kind of my only real like exposure to psychedelic medicine was in college as a recreational, you know, just experience with, with friends taking psilocybin mushrooms and had uh, effectively treated an eating disorder that I had my entire life. It's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and did not have a DSM diagnosis when I was growing up. I just, you know, I was like, oh, you're just, you know, you'll grow out of it, you'll grow out of it really picky. And I kind of always knew that wasn't going to happen. And it's like an extreme phobia of food. I really couldn't eat like any normal adult foods. I would, you know, gag up anything that I tried. I couldn't even really be around it. It was very socially debilitating, would hide it. I, because I grew up wrestling, I would hide it behind cutting weight and like preferred people thinking I was anorexic than what I was actually dealing with. And so this experience that I had, it just like reduced my anxiety about food by, you know, 80, 90%. I, all of the kind of normal adult foods that I can try now are are you know that i picked up really was from that like six month window after that experience where that neuroplasticity kind of window was open i was able to force that change and that was completely unintentional i just chalked it up to a miracle and like really never thought about it again uh and i you know live with a lot of regret about that now having later you know when it was too late after i'd already lost my mom when i kind of came across the research in this space and that, yeah, is a, a very kind of triggering thing for me that's, uh, you know, driving a lot of the, the advocacy uh, to, you know, help educate and, and, yeah, help make some some policy changes. Uh, but I, I did read an article recently from 
someone uh, wrote an op-ed who has the same condition as me and very intentionally took psilocybin and like, you know, basically put themselves through exposure therapy and, and had like a much more durable and sustained result than, than I did. And I think that just kind of goes to show like how important the, the therapy and like ongoing uh, changes, lifestyle changes are to keep up with and, and really be able to sustain those, those benefits. So I, I was, you know, thought it was very interesting reading that. And um, I guess very briefly, we're also, you know, very involved in uh, a, a lot of the the veterans who we work with who've gotten treatment outside of the country has been with Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, which show incredible potential for traumatic brain injury, PTSD, suicidal ideation, and, and Ibogaine for opioid use disorder also shows like incredible promise. And, and so we've been heavily involved in advocacy for opioid settlement funds uh, in Kentucky, uh, where we're looking to hopefully get $42 million that will go towards uh, Ibogaine research for, yeah, for, for opioid use disorder specifically. I, I, I'm so glad you brought all that up because, I mean, I have so many things uh, to unpack here. First of all, you mentioned neuroplasticity, which I want to get into, and that's that's a huge uh, reason why psychedelics actually work. You, you also mentioned ongoing therapy, so reintegration. I think it's a huge, huge part, uh, because people consume, uh, psychedelics and, and, and dosing, you know, you have psilocin, you have one a specific molecule, but dosing makes a huge difference. And then, uh, just a, a, a kind of a personal story, uh, and I had a, 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 a seal, uh, medic on, uh, my show before, and they talked about, you know, getting, uh, uh troops out of Afghanistan. On, on their own and during COVID, he was calling me up because we're, we're also friends and, uh, we lost 13 people during COVID. And that's exactly like, so there was a way that we were able to help facilitate, uh, getting them psilocybin after that zero. And as, as you mentioned, ibogaine, uh, we were able to, uh, help facilitate some ibogaine for them as well. And also, uh, zero now. I think the, the segue, there's two parts of this question I have. First of all, how are you involved in clinical research on these so we can quantify uh, some of these, especially dosing, et cetera? And the second part of this question, uh, and maybe uh, this is more to the uh, for the general, um, what's the temperature at the federal level for acceptance? Like what is, what is being said? Because making policy is one thing, but, you know, in, in, in Washington, you have to sort of go with certain, uh, you know, temperature changes and, and make these relationships. So I want to kind of understand uh, what, what's going on there at that level. Sure. So, yeah, uh, I mean, and we are like the two of us are, you know, we're not doctors or, or researchers personally. And, and a lot of our work is, is helping to set up those partnerships between, uh, you know, clinical treatment sites and academic, you know, uh, investigators and our, our co-founder, uh, Dr. Lynette Averill uh, at Baylor College of Medicine also, also lost her father to suicide when she was young. Uh, and she, you know, is the, the subject matter expert and the, the scientist and, you know, doing, uh, she's doing the, leading the study in Texas for veterans, uh, with, uh, you know, using psilocybin to treat PTSD that was funded by the government. Uh, in 2021, I believe that bill, Texas House Bill 1802, was passed for, I think, it was 1.2 million dollars. So not a you know huge amount, but a really like monumental 
achievement just to be able to get funding from such a conservative state. And now, uh, you know, here we are with Kentucky, hopefully about to allocate $42 million uh, for, for Ibogaine for opioid use disorder. So we're, you know, again, it's just building, uh, building and continuing to, to keep up that momentum. And, and we've been, you know, fortunate over the last year to have a lot of success in, in other states as well. I've unlocked 12 million dollars around you know across four states between illinois michigan arizona and connecticut uh so it'll be a, a variety of, of different uh different studies but ultimately uh you know really looking to treat more real world patients with those comorbidities that are uh, and, and hopefully looking at things like group therapy and, and more expansive protocols that will help uh, with the accessibility for for people moving forward, and so uh, yeah, all all that that progress I think is very important to the the federal level, where as change is always slower. You know, a lot of significant uh, policy movements begin at the state level and and work their way up, and and especially for a lot of the kind of veteran service organizations, people we work with are just a small upstart groups that they don't have like you know federal lobbyists or the money to go and like really get access to congress and so it was really unifying all of these different people around the country in these different movements kind of coming together uh around some shared policy goals has has done you know we've been able to achieve like an unbelievable amount forming you know just formalized it's now called the veteran mental health leadership coalition as a you know standalone entity to to bring people together and and yeah and the reason to be able to unlock so much that state funding and, and make so much progress at the federal level where, yeah, it is, it is harder. And our, our federal bill that we've been, uh, been working is called the breakthrough therapies act, which tries to really take a pretty conservative scientific approach. Just anything that gets a breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA or that the FDA approves for expanded access so it's based on that scientific determination from the FDA, that would, uh, if the active ingredients that are in Schedule 1, like MDMA or psilocybin, it would automatically require a rescheduling from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. And the, mm. the impact of that is pretty significant because it reduces the research barriers and allows people to access under the Right to Try Act, which would make all of the things that we're doing at the state level much more efficient, particularly uh, you know, with these veteran suicide prevention programs that should be focused on treating and you know, collect uh, training providers and collecting good data in real world settings. That is, uh, you know, critical regulatory change to be able to get that that rescheduling done. So we are, uh, yeah, seeing a growing amount of bipartisan support for that. Most recently, signed on senators uh, Bozeman uh, from Arkansas and Fetterman from Pennsylvania, and uh, yeah, so we've got you know four Senate co sponsors now and and ten. Uh, sponsors in the house and you know complete bipartisan split so making a, a lot of progress on on that front taking that kind of more conservative scientific approach that will will really help unlock that state funding that we've been been advocating for yeah i just reinforce on the the last portion of brett's comments regarding temperature which was the second half of your question len and uh just by his statement alone when you think about it, the, the co-sponsors of the Breakthrough Therapies Act, which uh, uh, Brett is a principal author of, that we reschedules these medicines, 
I mean, Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat, New Jersey, and Rand Paul, a Republican from Kentucky, are the two co-sponsors in the Senate, along with now Bozeman and Fetterman coming on, a uh, Republican and a Democrat. And in the case of the House, uh, it's a Democrat, Madeline Dean from Pennsylvania, and Republican Nancy Mace uh, from uh, South Carolina. So we've gotten about 10 more in the House, but the temperature is all about uh, education. It's all about exposure. It's all about getting over the uh, the challenge associated with uh, people having preconceived notions or fears or even older generation uh, members of Congress with looking back at the uh, you know the sixties and all of associated therewith. And we have been able through what Brett just said, we now have in the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition over 45 organizations and people who are veterans who we take with us when we go on the Hill and take with us when we go to the state legislatures. And they tell their story of their lived experiences of pain uh, and healing uh, through these medicines. And it has a profound effect. Uh, changing the temperature in Congress, changing the temperature, whether it's a member or a staffer that's trying to figure out where their boss is going to come down on this. So the Senate Bill 689, the House Bill uh, 1393, uh, it's a different thing because, you know, two years for a congressman, a House member, and six years for a senator. But we have seen a noticeable change in the temperature in regards to how they view these things and their exposure to the members of our coalition and the stories they tell regarding their survival and their lived experiences and how these medicines kept them on planet Earth. Yeah, I, I just think it's such a, an amazing way to be able to tell the story. You bring the real-life experiences of people, and you combine that with the science that goes with that with the observational studies, the clinical research that's been done. And, and, you know, once again, going back to my company, we know that there is a genetic predisposition, a polygenic risk score for treatment resistant depression. I mean, there's a several genes that people have. If we can actually test people in the beginning, they, we know that they're going to be resistant to SSRIs based on their genetic predisposition. Why give them the side effects from that? And then, and then we're sort of stuck going back to this whole, you know, ICD-10 code. We're stuck in this pharmaceutical mindset and being able to uh, reschedule these medicines and then be able to do clinical research on humans go through clinical trials. I think that's, you know, a great, great uh, way to be able to change the landscape. Uh, do you consider cannabis a psychedelic? I know there are plenty of people who do. I, it's not as involved in our, our work. Doesn't, doesn't really over the, certainly plenty of members of our coalition have been like heavily involved in, in cannabis policy and advocacy related work. Uh, but our advocacy is not uh, focused so much on, yeah, cannabis hasn't really been involved. It has so much already going on and so many people already kind of doing that, that work. And it, it doesn't, you know, really have the same level of like 
formal research behind it and and you know particularly uh for these like really serious mental health challenges that and like suicidal ideation where you know we have these treatments that are are very powerful that are coming through the fda and are rapid acting and seemingly a lot more durable and, and it's just a kind of different yeah it's a, it's a different i think risk profile and also a different you know set of set of evidence and different legal and kind of policy considerations but we have certainly plenty of people who are in our coalition who are big you know advocates of and heavily involved in, in the cannabis work as well and uh, it's just not as directly involved in in our focus what is this you know just to re- just uh we just chose that deliberate path because we knew that there were members of the coalition that were uh, advocates uh, for cannabis, but we didn't want to make the same mistakes. And we didn't, we didn't want to have to go down this path and be looking, you know, 25 years uh, from now uh, saying, Oh, we kicked it in the grandstands again. Uh, and we wanted to avoid it. And so, uh, it, it's it's properly in the coalition, and uh, we are on the proper path. We believe with the unique role that we are taking in our approach to healing. Yeah, and I think it makes sense from a policy standpoint because you're talking about a very complex plant with so many different molecules in it versus single or dual molecules, which it's much easier to do your research and figure out how much psilocin is produced from psilocybin what is the fruit i mean much less variables to get through and i I think people will connect uh much easier to that especially with the stories that you're telling uh what are some of the safety concerns that uh that exist around you know this uh, this medicine and then how do we mitigate some of those safety concerns sure so definitely they each have you know somewhat different risk profiles and, and ibogaine in particular uh you know this has been a, a big issue in in the the hearings for the you know proposed funding for for ibogaine research and development has been the qt prolongation and and heart you know concerns with uh you know potential like cardiac arrest and and it is a i think considered much medically riskier uh medication than you know other classic psychedelics like psilocybin uh that you know there really is kind of a stronger need for like a traditional medical treatment model where there is strict intake uh very careful intake procedures and uh heart monitoring and uh you know follow-up care that certainly there are some people who are going to need that level of oversight with other you know milder psychedelic medicines as well but you know there are also a lot of people i think who as we know are are okay just doing it in naturalistic settings or uh you know don't necessarily need that but but for people who are you know with really like serious challenging mental health conditions it, there's absolutely a, a concern about, you know, I think there's, there's both the, the concerns about like what might come up and, and just having like supportive uh, structures in, in place to make sure that everything 
uh, goes okay during the actual medication administration session. There are are cons- you know concerns though. I think there is, you know very 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 small percentage, mild number of people that have you know longer uh, persisting like hallucination uh, issues, and that is uh, you know again like it's it's pretty pretty minor. Uh, I think. A, a lot of the concern is it's not as much like a, a medical uh, safety issue as it is the you know, psychological safety and, and also, you know, fear of someone who is, you know, hallucin- under, you know, uh, going a hallucination and, and going out into the middle of the street or, you know, jumping over those, those fears are always going to exist to a certain extent. I think that's part of why the kind of pairing it within some sort of, whether it's traditional therapy or, uh, some sort of contained environment has a lot more kind of political viability and popularity than it is like a more contained uh, setting that that will keep both the participant and also society, uh, you know, safer from from those sort of external types yeah, of you, issues. You were, but, you were just yeah. described like reach for madness uh, over like you know smoke the joint, walked in the middle of the street kind of thing. And the reason why I brought that up is because you know. You're, you're, so, so reason for hope is all involved in policy change. And if, uh, if I'm sitting on the side of uh, a policymaker, I'm going to ask for what are the adverse effects, but medications have adverse effects. You have to be able to list them. And I believe that ketamine, uh, being a, uh, you know, is a schedule substance that's used for a specific, uh, therapeutic treatment that's done in specific centers. Or with oversight, you know, supposed to be oversight of a clinician with a reintegration that sort of sets a path to say, okay, well, you know, we can have these centers, we can have monitoring, we can have maybe even genetic tests to show you what the predispositions are to some of those adverse effects. And if that's the case, maybe we can have a, you know, somebody that has this predisposition, maybe we can give them some sort of other medication that's calming, or maybe for this person, they need a little bit more handholding, like actually physical handholding where somebody gives them that interaction. So you got to treat people as individuals, not group them together in one lump because not everybody's going to have those genetic uh, predispositions. Not everybody's going to be prone to those adverse effects. And the same thing with all medications. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have this idea of one size fits all. And I think this is the pharmaceutical model that's been created, uh, for us. It's a great subscription model because, you know, they're going to identify your symptom. Uh, they're going to treat your symptom. By the way, you have a side effect from that symptom. We got a pill for you too. And I'm not anti, uh, big pharma. I'm just saying that there's a path that's been created that's specifically done for you know, maybe there's a, you know, a monetary reason why that's been created that way, but you have this, all these amazing substances. And if you think about pharmaceuticals, most of those drugs came from plant medicines anyway, they were synthesized and now recreated so they can, you know, generate a revenue from those. So now going back and doing the same thing and starting from those substances, we already know have been used for, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years as therapeutic methods. Let's go create those uh, those studies and create the actual vehicle to help people because obviously as both of you talked about uh really really uh well that what we have today isn't working so what 
the, the, the current initiatives for Reason of Hope, what are the current initiatives and where can people kind of engage and, and support these current initiatives? What, what's most important? All right. I did want to add one more thing to Abdullah. I guess you, we could say this is related to, we submitted comments recently to the FDA's uh, clinical trial guidance and we, yeah, so worked with another organization, Brain Futures and Freeze Probe and the coalition. Yeah, so submitted our comments. And one of the, you know, issues on the, the safety front that we, we addressed was uh, potentially the need for uh, video recording and in all like, clinical settings that both for the protection of patients and providers where there are concerns about, you know, false memory in some of these sessions and and like you know we have been informed of on several occasions with ketamine of, of like accusations of abuse that did not actually happen they weren't malicious like in, intending to you know falsely report something they believe that happened and and the video evidence was able to prove that it did not and so i think that is an, another potential you know safety mechanism uh, we know that there has been a, abuse in on a lot of underground settings. We've also seen it in actual medical settings, in clinical trials where you know that this is being reported. So it's, uh, you know, these are concerns as well. And, and we need like actual oversight systems in, in place to be able to, you know, ensure we, we need to have, you know, licensing boards like need to be educated about this. And, and uh, yeah, it's something that, you know, it's, it's really not the role of like the FDA, for example, to be able to, to oversee that once it's out into in clinical practice. And, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of another one of the, the policy issues that uh, is that separation of powers and like who is going to be responsible for overseeing, ensuring good standards of care and practice here. How do you um, how do you enforce that though? Like, uh, if it's not the FDA, like, is it just everybody polices them each other themselves? Well, so it's in the case of like you know medical providers or therapists or it's, it's licensing bodies they're you know state regulated entities yeah. and uh there is it is possible and, and i mean some of this is is very novel like the way that it's coming through the uh through the fda so there's still a lot to be determined but there will almost certainly be like a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy uh called rems from the fda with uh, the approval of MDMA assisted therapy first, and you know what sort of restrictions the FDA puts on that, and like labeling requirements uh, is is to be determined. But it's possible that they they could require you know certain certified locations that meet certain safety requirements from you know whether it's from MAPS or or an independent entity. There are definitely different ways that additional controls and, and like oversight can be put in place. And, and at the end of the day, like all this like, will eventually come down to like balancing safety versus affordability and access. And, you know, these are all challenging policy issues. Like we want it to be safe, of course, but we don't want to overly, you know, regulate and restrict in a, in a manner that's going to make it completely inaccessible to, to people. Uh, and, and yeah, these are our, yeah, no, no challenging issues, and especially at like very early stages of, of this field, they're they're also important to to keep in mind. And uh, we are really like interested in those state initiatives that I mentioned, where you know we've been getting funding and uh, around the country to try to kind of bridge the gap between like tightly controlled research settings and more real world treatment centers uh, to be able to start piloting this in in those real world clinics these are the kind of things that can be 
you know, more easily address, figure out where the gaps are and, and what kind of more effective care delivery models look like that uh, aren't really a part of like the traditional pharma development because there's a whole new standard of care being developed alongside the, the actual drug development. Yeah, I, I think, and just to kind of uh, piggyback a little bit on, on what you just said, that's what I was thinking when you were saying price. If you get, if you have these centers and you have cameras and you have personnel, like it becomes a costly uh, kind of an, uh, endeavor for people. Do you envision, you know, maybe insurance covering, uh, you know, some of these therapies? And what is yes. and what is the V and what is the VA's kind of position on this? And and general, I know you were, uh, I think you were going to be the secretary of the VA and you decided that uh, you'll you'll do something a lot more interesting than than that. So I wanted to see uh, it, why you made that decision of what, and what is the feeling of the, of the VA uh, on on this too? The, Red, well, uh, sure, as the insurance coverage, I mean, I certainly suspect that there will be insurance coverage and, and I think the uh, affordability like component is, yeah, we're going to absolutely need that are going to need many you know favorable medicare uh coverage determination you're going to need medicaid coverage there's uh yeah uh, i think like going to be additional real world data that will help and make the case for uh, more robust you know private insurance coverage as well but yeah it's going to be critical to to affordability and especially in the case of, of psilocybin and, and other like natural uh, psychedelic substances that you can get elsewhere. And, and psilocybin is the easiest example just because of how much more readily available it you know, can be found around the country. It, you over-regulate and make it, you know, if there's not insurance coverage, it's over-regulated, it's too expensive, people can't afford it. Like, you know, once they know the general idea of what the research is, is showing and and you know think it's something that that can help them they're going to go to the underground and, or find it elsewhere and so you know, these are, <laughs> right these are all like important policy you know considerations for how to how to balance that you know safety and, and access and affordability and uh i think there's going to be a lot of learning that is done over the next you know five or ten years on on how to best balance these things and, and we're certainly seeing lots of you know decriminalization initiatives at city levels and and kind of legalization at, uh, in supervised settings at state levels that are uh, you know because of the conflict with federal law on on some of these state initiatives you can't get the tax deductions and it's been very expensive no insurance coverage you know so well, what do people do they go to you know, go to the underground uh, but it's it's yeah uh lot of things that I think will be worked out over the next several years and, and probably different pathways that are explored. Uh, I don't think that there are, you know, anyone who's like overly confident in my opinion with the way that it's, it's going to shape out from a, a legal or a regulatory perspective are the people that I trust the least. <laughs> there's so <laughs> much we don't know still. And, and yeah, I mean, there's, uh, a lot of different ways that, that I could see it playing out moving forward. And, but at this point, it's good that there's so much research out there, at least showing, uh, you know, some of the benefits. So I don't think the genie will ever entirely go back to being, you know, put back in the bottle. There's too many people in need. And, uh, on, on that note, I guess I'll, I'll let general Steele maybe wants to speak to, to the VA. Cause yeah, that's, uh, that's really, <laughs> you know, the need. Yes. 
Uh, first of all, we talked about Dr. Lynette Averill, one of our co-founders uh, from Baylor College of Medicine. She's also uh, uh, with the VA in Houston, Texas, and she is a subject matter expert in this area and was the principal uh, person who got House Bill 1802 in the state of Texas passed regarding uh, uh, psychedelics. The VA is risk averse, and uh, they have been continuously saying, and we've been working with them uh, closely, uh, that there's more research is needed. They put out papers. Uh, we testified before the House uh, last fall, uh, wrote a paper with three recommendations for the VA. Uh, if they would have been implemented, we would have been well on our way to do some of the things to find five areas in the country to be able to have access and research. Uh, their position has been about as a fast follower uh, and no federal money. They've been getting uh, private money to be able to do whatever they have done. But they're about, uh, you know, double blind, evidence based, placebo based uh, research in this. All we want them to do is uh, get much more actively involved in all of this because it's their cohort, which is the, the largest population who has the greatest need right now. And they have an opportunity to be able to be the model to emulate in the country as opposed to the fast follower waiting for the research. So what's happened recently uh, and very recently is uh, cautious optimism that they are now understanding that uh, that they can't keep doing what they're doing and have success in the treatment of this young cohort. Uh, they're going to have to change their methodological approach, and they're going to have to start with uh, research. And uh, once they do that, I believe that we get uh, veterans to participate in that protocol uh, then it'll explode in a positive way uh, to be able to get them to participate in a manner wherein we can move this forward in conjunction uh, with the federal government, FDA, DEA, et cetera, to be able to uh, make these medicines available. Not again from a decriminalization or social use, because we're just going to stay uh, with the medical model here and the advocacy for law to get the research done. Uh, at the federal and state level. But I am, uh, I, I mean this, more optimistic today than I was yesterday, just on what we uh, gained from it. But they're going to have to prove themselves to be a little bit more uh, involved in understanding that the need is only going to get worse. It's only going to be more. It's not going to go away over time. And uh, we're talking about lives here. We're talking about saving people's lives. We're talking about a cultural shift in the protocols for treatment of mental health issues uh, for our people of our society, which is in danger right now because of the, the uh, significance of this issue. So I didn't, I was asked and I didn't take the job, uh, uh, but you know, my sense is is that uh, we have the potential to do more good from our vantage point right now uh, to coalesce them uh, into being much more involved with all this. And so my uh, issue is speed 
and uh, the, the leadership in the organization and its sustainability. You know, it's a, at the top, it turns over so frequently that you may get some uh, impetus behind it. It doesn't matter. It uh, doesn't have to be politically oriented, or it could be that they have bipartisan support or whatever, who's ever in power in the Congress or who's in the White House. What we really do need is this is a medical issue for people's lives. It can't be a political issue. And the VA has to be the model to emulate by getting involved in the research, treatment protocol, and resiliency for our veterans. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. That totally, totally makes sense and very, very uh, well said. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears for a little bit and ask a question. I ask uh, all my guests. I'm a, a big music uh, fan, so I have a, a for those that can see behind me albums, uh, pictures. So any kind of genre. So uh, I'm gonna go to Brett first. If uh, you have five albums that you have to listen to for the next year. You don't have to name the actual album. You can say, all right, Beatles or whatever it is. But what would be those five albums? And I'm putting you on the spot because if somebody asked me, I mean, probably two of them will be identical. Maybe the other three would change tomorrow. So this is a moment in time. Five albums. Oh, I am <laughs> not kidding you when I say I do not think I could even name five albums right now off the top of my right. head. But you can be, could you name like five bands that you like or musicians or anything like that? So, I, I somewhat, but I'll, I'll say like I'm not a big music person. It's it's funny that I had this conversation with someone the other day too. It was like the first time I had heard someone else say something very similar where like I don't even have uh, you know, Spotify or like any music apps or anything on my phone. I, you know, I'll, li- I'll listen to some, some podcasts, but for the most part, you know, I, yeah, watch, watch a lot of sports or read a lot and just don't, you know, for most people like, you know, listen to music or whatever, when they read backwards, can't do it. Just, uh, so yeah, not a, not a huge, uh, not, not a huge, you know, not a music guy, music person, but it's, um, uh, yeah, just funny. This conversation like just came up for me the other day, where someone said, you know, didn't I? So, oh, like, what music do you have for your car? Didn't didn't have any like no way to connect their you know their phone to the radio, no like you know stations or anything. Just did no music in the car whatsoever. And I was have you shocked. ever been to a Have you ever been to a concert? Yeah, of, of course. The last one I I went to was. Oh God! Uh, I've been to Beyonce concert before. There uh, we go. So Beyonce's on the list. That was that was through work, but still a great concert. <laughs> uh, that was when I worked at a uh, at the law firm, and uh, which I yeah left at the end of last year. And uh, the first concert I ever went to, Blink One Eighty Two. All right. Uh, so there yeah, give you the the first and and the most recent. Okay. And I. Uh, my wife would love for me to take her to see Taylor Swift. So, uh, you know, now that, uh, you know, she's feel like I'm seeing much more about her now with the whole Travis Kelsey, yeah, uh, situation. And it just seems to be unavoidable in, in, yes. in the news. Uh, so yes. yeah, maybe that's, maybe it'll be next one. Okay. Well, I got, I got three out of you, so that's good. <laughs> uh, general Steele, you'll get 
you you won't i don't know about the albums but i can give you the entertainers okay uh, let's do it so it's a little bit more melodramatic with me because i'm in an age where music means so much to me growing up in it and all that but every day when i start my day i uh my wife and i've been married 56 years we're high school sweethearts she leaves to go out to walk and I turn on Imagine by John Lennon, and I listen to that song every day. Uh, I get emotional every morning with my first cup of coffee, listening to the lyrics of Imagine by John Lennon. That's number one. The second song I listen to is Cohen's Walking in Memphis. Uh, I listen to that every day. Uh, same thing. That message is so profound to me, so simple to me, but it is uh the lyrics there are uh hard to describe to anybody uh even when they hear it they don't get it but to me that song is extremely powerful fleetwood mac anything they play uh i listen try to listen uh every day to their top five songs they're all interrelated to me but they i like them a lot eagles same thing i've seen them in concert multiple times uh, before they started passing away. And then the last one I say, fifth one, uh, which my wife cannot stand and she never is around, but I'm a big Michael McDonald fan. Oh, big yeah. Michael. Doesn't matter if he's back with his first group or by himself or uh, yeah. I just love his, love his music. So I hope I answered the question. You, so that uh, was great i love it michael mcdonald too with doobies and without doobies like yep. what an incredible voice i i, I yep. her uh great great choices I, I love them okay so final bonus question uh I, I don't know who wants to go first uh please describe what your room looked like growing up brett we'll go to, we'll go to brett first since he looks like he wants to answer <laughs> so i i definitely i mean when i was very young i had uh, like race car, you know, red, like race car, you know, childhood bed and this kind of like formula one type, like car wallpaper that, that like was never taken day. I've, you know, until we moved out, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that, that wallpaper still, uh, still existed and, and far too many, uh, clothes and things all over the, the floor that were, uh, never, you know, really properly put away. And, and I, unfortunately, uh, you know, habits are hard to break. So uh, that, that issue persists uh, for me to this day, uh, you know, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, nothing on the walls, like uh, posters, sports, uh, pennants, uh, uh, anything uh, like that? Or? I, so I, yeah, I will definitely a lot of that. Uh, and, you know, I, because I grew up wrestling and I, you know, yeah. give you the bracket, you know, you win a tournament, they give you the, the chart or, you know, a little like, you know, random, you know, wrestling like trophies, medals, and also, you know, some other sports from when I was younger, but that was, you know, the most serious for me. So, yeah, charts, I, uh, again, uh, uh, the one that always sticks with me because my wife gives me a very hard time about it was, you know, when she came and saw my wall, it was a 48 pound bracket. And I'm just like, you weighed 48 pounds? I was seven years old. It was, it was my first, <laughs> you know, first year sport. So, yes, it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was 22 and 48 pounds. Yeah, 48 pound <laughs> weight class. Got it. Thank you. Uh, General Steele. Yes. 
uh, it was in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and uh, my memory of my room, and uh, the house was not air-conditioned. Uh, there was an attic fan right outside my door that stirred the hot air around, you know, particularly in the summertime. My room was, I was blessed that it had four windows on two different corners above the bed. The bed was a hand-me-down uh, from uh, my parents, a double bed, uh, kind of lumpy. I had a desk in there uh, where I did all of my studying and my sports memorabilia. It had a closet there too, but my sports, I was neat by the way. So my sports memorabilia was because of Fayetteville, Arkansas and the Arkansas Razorbacks. I was a, I was a ball boy for uh, Frank Broyles, who was the head coach and uh, athletic director. He was my little league baseball coach. So I had all of these great coaches uh, from the University of Arkansas that went on, you know, the, the Frank Broyles Award is named to this day to the, the best uh, assistant coach in America. So I saw all those guys. They coached me. So they all gave me a piece of Razorback memorabilia. Was it a chin strap? Was it a glove from the baseball team? Uh, uh, what it, a jersey, something like that, that uh, uh, I had. And I didn't hang them on the wall, and I had no pictures on the wall, but I had them out so I could see them. And, uh, and it was always about Go Hogs and the Razorbacks. Got it. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, where can people engage more with a uh, reason for hope or contact or uh, donate or any other ways that they can support you? Sure. So uh, our website is uh, reason-for-hope.org. Uh, and uh, for the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, it's vmhlc.org. And we are on uh, LinkedIn, Instagram. And yeah, uh, you know, can can always uh, you know go on our website to to email uh, info at uh, reason four hope org or info at vmhlc org and and yeah, please uh, you know feel free to to reach out and and we you know hope to continue to build upon our our coalition advocacy and and are always looking for uh, you know more people around the country to get involved. So. Uh, thank you both so much for joining me. I think what you're doing is uh, incredible and very well needed. Uh, I have a lot of personal experience in, in this with uh, mental health and, and veterans. So whatever we can do to support, but thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and the work that you're doing. Really appreciate it. Thanks for what you do, Lynn. Thanks for what you do. And it's a pleasure Thanks to be so today. And I hope it's value added to uh, your programming, what you're doing. A hundred percent. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms podcast. I started the Pop Moms podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. 
The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.